The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right. If you guys want to turn to Acts chapter 9, that would be wonderful. Uh, From what I understand, you guys started the book of Acts several months back and spent a little time with some Advent, and now we are jumping back in where you guys left off. So Acts 9. One of the things that you may have noticed about the book of Acts is the massive advancement of Christianity that took place in such a short amount of time. Uh, One of the reasons for this was because of the power to convert. What I mean by that is the gospel actually has the ability to change people from the inside out. Uh, When you talk about conversion, though, that's a term that today people don't really like very much, Uh, especially here as we live in the Northwest. They think, okay, it's kind of cool if you want to talk about Jesus and stuff, uh, but don't try to actually convert me to what you uh, believe. Your truth is your truth, and so I would really appreciate it if you would just keep that to yourself. Now, I was shocked uh, this past week when the Pope actually came out and he said this, If someone says they are a disciple of Jesus and comes to you with proselytism, they are not a disciple of Jesus. I was shocked. But here's the problem with that. Christianity, from the very beginning, has always been a converting religion. Because we believe, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 3, he says that unless you're converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in John 3, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we believe in conversion because Jesus actually believes in conversion. Now, the question, does every conversion look the same? The answer is obviously no. Some people's conversions are really dramatic. Uh, Maybe you're in here and you had a really, really dramatic conversion. Maybe you hated God. Maybe there was a lot of rebellion in your heart. Maybe you were even an atheist at one time, didn't want to believe God, didn't want to know God, didn't want to have anything to do with God. Um, and, And God then just simply reached out and changed your heart. And he was like, nope, you're going to be mine. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. And, 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 but that's great, but that is not how everyone experiences conversion. Uh, some conversions are really, really, really quiet. They're very quiet, right? Not a lot of drama, right? Uh, you're born maybe into a Christian home. And you know what? You just kind of love Jesus your whole life. You feel like you always knew Jesus and you were always known uh, by Jesus. Uh, Some conversions are not just quiet or super dramatic. Some conversions are very, very sudden. Just like, boom, you're just a Christian. Like all of a sudden something happened. You don't know what happened. Something hit, something changed, lights came on, and all of a sudden you just kind of understood there is a God. It's Jesus, right? Uh, Some are over a period of time slow progression, like a really good brisket on the Traeger, right? Just slow cooking over time, and it just kind of melts away, right? That's kind of where you are. And there's just kind of this slow progression towards faith. That means when we look at this idea of conversion, we cannot take any one single conversion and turn it into the standard for everyone else's conversions. However, there are certain elements that are very common 
when you look at people's conversions, which we're going to see in our story today. As we look at perhaps the most famous conversion in the history of the church, the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle. Now, in fact, Dr. Luke who is the author of the book of Acts, is so impressed with this story that he includes it three times in the book of Acts, which drives us pastors nuts because we have to teach the same thing three times. We have to try to figure out how to do that, right? Now, before we see his conversion, who was this guy Saul? I want to know who he is. Um, uh, who is this guy Saul that would eventually write most of the books of the New Testament. And he would become the greatest missionary in the history of the church. He became the greatest church planter in the history of the church. So let's get to know our friend Saul, although he wouldn't have been very friendly at this point in his life. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And this guy asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way or Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what you learn about this guy is this guy probably didn't get hugged very much when he was a kid, right? This is not a nice man. A couple of things that you need to know about this guy, Saul. Number one, he is a religious jerk. That is who this guy is. Uh, He's not doing this because he's an atheist. He's not coming after Christians because he doesn't believe in God. No, he believed that he was on God's special mission to put an end to the following of Jesus. He says it this way, as uh, some years later when he's reflecting back on this to the church at Galatia, he says this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, looking back on his life, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he is doing this because of what he actually believed was the call of God on his life. He was more religious than everyone else. And he's on a mission to shut down the church. And he says, look, I was at the top of my class. Like he was valedictorian of his class of like persecution, right? He got voted most likely to be awesome as a Pharisee. Uh, He's like, nobody was more committed and more focused than I was about my religion. So he is very religious. And he is a religious jerk about it, okay? That means that just because you're a religious person, you show up, you go through the motions, you read your Bible, you pray, that doesn't mean you've actually been converted. That doesn't mean you've been born again. That doesn't mean that the heart has been changed. The Bible reveals that even religious people, very, very moral people, right? Like live the right way, look the right way, vote the right way. Even moral people need to be converted. This also shows that even Jews who worshipped Yahweh, right, needed to be converted as a follower of Jesus. So if he needed to be converted, that means 
everybody needs to be converted, right? How contrary is this to what we tend to hear in our culture today? Well, what's really, really important, some might say, is just that you live a moral life. If you just live a decent life, if you just live a good life, listen, nobody was living a more moral and decent life than Saul of Tarsus. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Once again, he says this about himself. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, he was off the charge. So Saul later goes on to tell us he was a part of this sect called the Pharisees. Now, they were the religious rock stars, the superstars of the day. And he has the gall to say that he actually believed that he was keeping the law flawlessly. Now, in Saul's mind, there has never been a more moral and decent person than himself. And yet, as we will see in the text, he needed to be converted. Uh, he wasn't just a moral or, or religious person. Uh, the Bible also tells us that this man believed that he was filled with faith. He had faith in what he was actually doing, so much so that the Bible tells us that he ravaged against the church. Basically, he was the head of Al-Qaeda, and he was going jihad on the church. Now, have you ever heard someone say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your heart? Do you know how moronic that statement is? It is absolutely stupid. Isis believes something with all their heart. Hitler believed something with all his heart, and lots of people died, right? Saul believed something with all his heart, but he was absolutely wrong. And it's killing not only others, but it is actually killing and hurting himself. I mean, he's looking for any Christian, think about this, any Christian, your grandma who loves Jesus, your mom, your sister, your wife, your kids, Saul didn't care. If he found out that you were a part of this sect called the way, he, as chapter 8 verse 3 said, is going to be taking you as prisoner. Now his hope is to rid the world of the way of Jesus. Now, what does he do? He gets permission to travel upwards of 150 miles 150 miles. Remember, this is without cars, so he's walking or he's riding, right? 150 miles to hunt down Christians. You know what you call that? You call that commitment, man. That guy believes in something, he is committed to it, and he is going for it. Uh, but commitment, even to something, isn't everything. Faith in something, even something very religious, as we will see isn't enough. You must be converted. But this is who he is. This is Saul of Tarsus. Yet something happened to him, something that is about to change him so radically that took him from hating Christians to actually becoming one of them. Uh, it took him from killing Christians to eventually having his own head chopped off in Rome because he became one. What happened to this man? 
This religious jerk has this massive transformation. How did this happen to this person? Well, the first thing we see is the same thing that we see with most of us, is that there is this revelation that comes our way. What do you mean by revelation? Let's look at verse 3. The Bible says this. The first thing that happens in conversion is there is a revelation. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, or Yahshua, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. The first thing we see here is that there is revelation. Now, you have to appreciate the irony in this story here. Uh, Saul was going to knock people down, right? He was going to knock people around that followed Jesus, and now Saul gets knocked down by Jesus. So that's kind of funny, in in my opinion. Uh, I believe Jesus had a sense of humor here, and I believe he may have snickered a little bit. Now, it's possible that the light itself blinded him, right? Big, blinding light, and he fell off. It's possible the voice thundered so deep, so strong, uh, it knocked him down. Uh, But really, Saul, what Saul is really getting knocked around by here is not so much something, some force that happened to him. What happened is, is he's being hit with the power of the truth. You see, the revelation of Jesus, the God Saul didn't make up in his own mind, the God that Saul hadn't created in his own head, Jesus, Yahshua, is revealed to him and he falls to the ground. Saul had believed and had faith in Yahweh. He had a faith in a God that he had literally made up in his own mind. A God that fit all of his views. He did not have the God who is actually present. He didn't have Emmanuel. He didn't have the God that was actually there. He didn't have the God that could knock you around. Notice in verse 5, he says, Who? Who are you, Lord? That's the question. Saul thought he knew who God was. He thought, for example, God could never become a human being. That would be impossible in his understanding. He thought God would never, ever, ever set aside the temple or the sacrifices. Therefore, because he thought he knew who God was, he thought the Christians had to all be wrong, so he is persecuting them. Now, just a side note, Jesus says that he has been persecuting who? He says him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, Jesus takes the persecution of his church very personal. Now, that's helpful for me personally because I have a lot of friends in Burkina Faso. I've got a couple pastoral friends that died this past year in the midst of persecution. Um, And and so, so for me, this is a reassuring verse 
that God knows, he relates very intimately, and he's also experienced in being persecuted himself on the cross. He knows what it's like to feel that. He knows what it's like to go through that, and he can sympathize with them and us. So he says here, why do you persecute against me? Any persecution against the church, any persecution that that we may or may not face, God feels that. Now, what happens on the road to Damascus is he discovers the God he has was actually a God he had constructed in his own mind. It was the God that Saul actually wanted himself, not the God who's actually there, the God who is actually real. Now, in our culture today, we wouldn't normally construct the God of Saul, right? We wouldn't normally do that. Instead, here in the Northwest, the God that we construct is the God who is what? Love, right? And what we mean by that, it's the God that lets us do whatever we want, okay? So because God is love, he won't, he won't come at me. He would never knock me down, right? And what we mean by that is he is the, the ever-accepting God. He's never going to tell you that you're actually wrong. He's just going to agree with you, give you a big hug, and tell you that you're a precious little snowflake. That's what God's going to do. Now, as different as that is, this is not Saul's God, right? Uh, and it's the same thing. That is, it is a God that we tend to make up in our own mind. Now, what's the problem with gods that we make up in our own mind? Everything, right? A God you made up is basically just a, a, a projection of yourself, right? A God you have made, therefore, cannot possibly actually help you. That God can't lift you up. That God can't make you more than you really are. That God can't change you from the inside out. It's just the ever accepting God of whatever it is that you want to do. See, if a God you have made up is really just you, then that God can't actually convert you or change your heart. It's not going to transform you. You're just going to continue to be conformed into the image of that God. That's what we call idolatry. Uh, He can't help you because he's not greater than your heart. He's actually just a construction of your heart. What you need more than anything is the God who is actually real, the God who is actually there, the God who will actually tell you the truth in love, a God who is greater than your heart. Why? Because as 1 John 3.20 says, "If if our hearts condemn us, God then, is greater than our hearts. What does that mean? Your heart condemns you. You feel bad about yourself, but God comes and says, no, you're wrong. You're wrong about who you are. There's a purpose for you. I love you, and I can change you. That is impossible for God to do unless he's actually greater than your heart. There has to be a God who is real. There has to be the God who's actually there. And that God has to bring revelation to you that you are not God. And when you're getting converted... You sense there is a God who's kind of coming at you. There's just this kind of pursuit that's being made. A God who's actually out there. A God who's dealing with you and starting to reveal things that you never thought would be revealed to you. Things that maybe you even didn't want to hear at one point. He's telling you things about yourself maybe even that you don't really like. And even telling things about himself you don't like at all either. So there's the revelation of God. That tends to happen in all conversion. God begins to reveal himself to you, and it's different than what you expected. The second thing that we see here is there is wrestling. Uh, Let's look at verse 8. It says this, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank, right? There is this wrestling that starts to happen in Saul. And in you and I, there's a real wrestling. And when I'm talking about real wrestling, I'm talking about like WWF from the 80s, because every other wrestling is fake, except for like Nacho Libre. But real, real wrestling in your heart. Now, a lot of people think Saul's conversion was super, super sudden, right? It was super dramatic. And, and, and it is. There's lights, right? Jesus is talking. But I'm not sure Saul's conversion is as sudden or as fast as we think it is. As a matter of fact, there were a few days here, three of them, of simply wrestling with what happened with him, with his God. He's wrestling here. Think about it. Jesus knocks Saul down. Jesus is revealed to him. Unlike the Ethiopian eunuch who you heard uh, a couple months ago, who immediately is like, I believe. Let me be baptized. That doesn't happen here with Saul. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to him and say, okay, Saul, repeat after me. Jesus, I invite you into my heart. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just blinds him. He lets him kind of sit in that deep darkness to to ponder, like, what just happened to me? What is going on in, in my, everything that I thought I believed in is turning itself upside down. And God, after blinding him, lets him sit in this space, in this darkness, to wrestle with the reality of what had just happened to him. To wrestle with, who is this Jesus? What do I really believe about this Jesus? To wrestle with even his doubts. Notice Jesus just, is just like, hey, just go into the city blind and wait. That's all he gets, right? And it says, Saul got up. He could see nothing. He was in the darkness and they lead him out by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't, he doesn't drink anything. Now, why blindness? What's going on with this blindness thing? First, I think this is part of what God reveals to all of us. God is showing him how blind he was. Jesus uh, tells the story about the man who was once blind, but now he was able to see. There is a, 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 a relatability to that with every single person that's a Christian, right? You were once in darkness, you were once in blindness, but all of a sudden a light gets flipped on. Before we can actually receive the light though, we have to realize that we are sitting in the dark, right? We have to know that we're in the dark. Saul will spend three days fumbling around in the dark blind. If you are in the dark, what do you actually need? We need light. We need light, something outside of us to shine on us, something to illuminate what's actually going on in our lives. Light helps us see the way we should go. That's what light does. But when you first come into the light, after being in the dark, what does it do to you? It blinds you right? It's like Griswold family Christmas when he finally connects the lights and the next door neighbors go all dark, right? Tripping over everything. When you first come into the light, it is absolutely blinding. Saul is feeling that right now. And this time he is giving him time to do what? To think, to wrestle, right? 
to, to wrestle with what's actually going on inside of him. Now, in this time, he is rethinking his entire understanding of God. So you think about this. This guy was a theologian of theologians, right? He had the Old Testament probably memorized as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And now he's re-searching and rethinking through the entire Old Testament. And he's trying to make sense of Jesus, right? Uh, and, and perhaps he's now seeing things seeing things, even though he's blind, that he's never seen before. You see, on the road to Damascus, Saul as a Pharisee would have rejected the idea that Jesus was actually the Messiah. Why would he have rejected that? Because the Messiah would be the blessed of God. That's his interpretation. He would be the most blessed one of God. But Jesus, he ended up being hung on a tree on the cross. He would declare, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Clearly, Yahshua, Jesus, was cursed of God, Saul would think, in his mind. The Messiah was supposed to be the most blessed, the most honored, the most loved by God. But Jesus on the cross was clearly cursed and abandoned by God. So how in the world could this Jesus actually be Messiah? But then Saul meets Jesus. And guess what? He ain't dead, right? He is not dead. He is alive. He is raised from the dead. And the first thing he is thinking is, oh my goodness, this resurrection thing that we've been hearing rumor about all throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Israel, all of the stirrings and all of the talkings, guess what? Not only am I now hearing the rumors, but I am seeing that he is actually alive and that the resurrection is actually real. Everything he had been learning from these Christians, all of the rumors that they had been talking about is now real to him. Paul did not have a subjective experience. His encounter with Jesus was physical. It was real. And it was absolutely historical. It's something that really happened. And it is something that we all must make a decision about. He describes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 9. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom... Are still alive. In other words, if you want an eyewitness report of people that actually saw Jesus, I can give you their address and you can go talk to them. Uh, then he appeared to more than 500 people. Uh, the brothers at one time, most of them are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, right, he appeared, Paul says, to me. And I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I actually persecuted the church. This is something he would wrestle with for the rest of his life. You see, Christian conversion is not merely a response to an experience that we have, right? It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ raised physically from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago, and hundreds of people saw him. And Paul this guy who hated him most, this guy who rejected him most, this guy who wanted to see Christianity put to death, ends up believing in him? 
Why? Because he really saw him. There's nothing else that would change this man like this. He is becoming really converted. And for Saul, if Jesus is really raised from the dead, that means Jesus must have somehow been vindicated. It means he actually was the blessed one of God. And that means that on the cross, he wasn't actually being cursed for his own sins, but now he is being cursed for our sins. Or he never would have been raised from the dead. If he is the Messiah, and he has been vindicated, and he has been loved, then on the cross, he must have been being cursed and abandoned for someone else's sins, which are mine and ours. Suddenly, Saul is going all the way back through the Old Testament. He's thinking through the Old Testament, and everything begins to look new in light of the fact that Jesus is actually the hero. All kinds of things he hadn't seen start to make sense. All kinds of different connections he had never seen are starting to come together. All of the riddles he was in the dark on suddenly become absolutely real. And he would later write about all of these things. Things like, hey, there was a first Adam. But now Jesus is the true and better Adam as he talks about him in Romans. Uh, He would know that salvation then is not by our works, by doing things according to the law. It is a salvation that is by faith in the promise of God that he had promised from the very beginning that someone was coming for you as he talks about in Romans 4. In Galatians, he would tell us that Jesus is the better promise, that Jesus is the better sacrifice to atone for sins. You see, when he understood that the Messiah had been cursed and abandoned for us, and he went back into the Bible, suddenly everything began to look different. Suddenly, you didn't have to be strong. You didn't have to be perfect. You didn't have to be righteous to be a part of God's family. But to be a part of God's family was to believe that Jesus is good, Jesus is strong, Jesus is perfect, and he imparts his righteousness to you and I. This happens in conversion. Whether a religious person is converted or an irreligious person is converted, people say there was this revelation. I was really wrestling the thing over with God. There was this mixture of both like darkness. I was in the dark, but then there's this light that's coming. Then all of a sudden, it just started to make sense. And it's not just a wrestling with who Jesus is. It's a wrestling about who we are. You see, he isn't just wrestling with who God is. He has to wrestle with who actually he is. Who is Saul? What is he about? What is his mission? Notice it says there he didn't eat for three days. Here is Saul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's at the top of his class and he is being shown that is not the way up, right? Uh, And like Isaiah the prophet, their stories are very similar if you want to read about it in Isaiah chapter 6. He is absolutely undone in this moment. Where Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is saying, woe is them, woe is them in Isaiah 5. And then Isaiah 6, he meets the Lord. He sees him high and lifted up. The train of the robe fills the temple. And all of a sudden, he can't even speak because he's in the presence of awesomeness. He's in the presence of God. He's found out. He is undone. See, when you step into the presence of God, And you really start to get it. You realize how small we are, how weak we are, how desperate we are for him. And I just want to ask, have you been there? 
Have you seen that the magnificence of his steadfast love, his faithfulness to you, even when you are unfaithful, it overwhelms you and that just outs you totally before him. Saul is in this place right here, right now, and it's absolutely destroying him. The very God he thought he was serving is the one that he was actually persecuting. He was wrestling and rethinking who he was. He's rethinking his identity and he's realizing, I can't keep this up. I can't earn my salvation. I can't be my own savior. I need someone outside of me to save me. See, conversion is not just adopting some new moral structure of how to do the right thing. Many people think, oh yeah, if you call me to become a Christian, you're going to want me to convert. That means you want me to stop living this way and, and get very moral and go to church and do all these things. Don't you see that conversion is not simply a call to a moral code? Conversion, if anything, is a challenge to our self-righteous morality. Saul is destroyed here from what he thought he was doing as being good. He saw he couldn't save himself, and that put him on the brink. And there is nothing better that God could do for him or you. God will allow you to think, I'm awesome for a season. He'll let you do your thing, allowing you to think that you are your own identity, but when God is in pursuit, the very things that you think would define you end up destroying you. And now you sit in that. You wrestle in that. So there's this conversion. There's this revelation. There's this wrestling. And finally this morning, we see there is this confirmation. What do you mean by confirmation? Let's, let's read. It says in verse 10, Now there was a disciple to Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. He he was confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And when he had come to Jerusalem finally, he attempts to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for very good reason, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in, brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see this phrase throughout the book of Acts, it multiplied. All right. So what happens? Somebody's converted. They've got this revelation. They've got this wrestling that's taking place. There is a final thing that happens, and that is this concept of confirmation. Now, you have to appreciate Ananias here. He starts off really respectful when he finds out that his mission is to go and talk to Saul, right? He says, Lord, I know about this guy. I've heard about Saul. Like, everybody knows about Saul. I don't know if you get the news up there. I don't know if it's current, but the reports down here, right, are that this dude is a really bad guy. God, don't you remember? He murdered Stephen. Stephen could tell you he's with you now, right? Um, He arrests Christians. Uh, He's now got legal jurisdiction to travel upwards of 150 miles to arrest us, to drag us back, to beat us, to harm us, and maybe to kill us. I'm just letting you know in case the news isn't current, right? But the Lord simply says to him what? just go, right? You got to go. Probably not as much conversation as Ananias would have liked to have had on the subject, but that's what he got. So he goes to Saul, the modern leader, right, of the ISIS movement. He is going to that guy to talk to him about Christianity. He goes to him. He lays his hands on him now. Now the laying on of hands, it's not magic. Okay. If you've been around church for a while, you need to know that it's not magic. If anybody has ever laid hands on you when they pray, uh, you know, it's not magic. They could pray for you away from you, right? They can pray for you without laying hands on you. What does it mean? Man, it is a welcoming feeling of endearment. It is a, it is a show of love. It's saying, I'm with you, brother. I am family, right? And that's what it means. It means we are family and we are in this together. Now, the other thing that's remarkable about this is that Ananias calls him brother. That's crazy. Ananias isn't stupid. He knows who Saul is, but he also knows what God has said about Saul, right? Ananias understands the gospel. He understands it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter how sinful, how much you hated God previously. You can still be converted because that is the grace of God. And so when he sees him, he doesn't see him as the past murderer. He sees him now as brother because that is the power of the gospel to change people. He knows anybody can come and have their sins wiped away because of what Jesus did for him. That means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. That's the reason why when Ananias comes and puts his arms around Saul, he calls him brother. We also see this. Saul is now praying. What does that mean? It means he has relationship with God. He's talking to God. Why is that such a big deal? Because he used to be a Pharisee. He probably prayed all the time. Well, that's true. But but Jesus talks about it on the Sermon on the Mount. He says the religious leaders think they will be heard by their many words. And that's not this. 
Saul is actually no longer in a business relationship with God. He's in an actual relationship with the one that he knows has actually saved him. The second thing there is he receives this gift of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that, obviously, in the book of Acts early on. Look, you cannot have the Holy Spirit and not be a part of the family of God. It's absolutely impossible. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts, adopts us in. And Saul here was told that he was chosen, that he was actually handpicked by God. Thirdly, there is this amazing proclamation. All of a sudden, he can't shut up about Jesus. You know how you know when you've been converted? You can't stop talking about Jesus. It's so dramatic. It's so big. Something happened to you outside of you, some historical event that happened in your life, and you can't stop talking about him. And then finally, there is fellowship. In the end of this chapter, we see this beautiful fellowship that starts to take place because uh, 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 Barnabas comes, or Ananias comes, and he, he brings Saul into the family. He welcomes him into the family. Even though the other disciples didn't want him to be a part of the family, he welcomes him into the family. And finally, we see this fellowship of suffering. Anybody suffering here as a Christian? We suffer. We go through life. We groan. In Romans 8, 16, and 17, Paul actually tells us that we are going to experience some of the sufferings like Jesus suffered being in the family of God. This is who Paul is now. These are the confirmations that he sees. He's filled with the Spirit. He's in and a part of the family. He's praying and talking to God. He's actually out there declaring the greatness of God. This is Paul as a child of God. We see him now converted. Now, our lives may look a lot like this. Today, I would just say to you, if you know Jesus, you love Jesus, and you've been converted by Jesus, that you would know in your heart that you have been truly converted because you've had revelation, you've had confirmation, you've wrestled it through. And now there's these opportunities where we get to declare his greatness to the world around us. If you're here today, maybe you don't know Jesus. Today, right here, right now, this is his pursuit of you. This is God's kindness to you here that you ended up here this morning to hear this amazing conversion of this person, this historical fact that took place, and this is God's moment as he is pursuing your heart. And I would ask you to let that work. Wrestle with it. I'm not going to force you to do something dramatic or quick. Every conversion is different. Maybe you are that slow cooking brisket right now on that Traeger. Everybody's hungry right now, right? It's slow, it's cooking, and God is working in your heart. There's going to be a moment where the light comes on and conversion is going to take place. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the kindness that you have showed us who are your kids. You've adopted us into your family, and that is an amazing gift that we have received. And God, we pray that like Saul that there would be many more, not just in here, but you have many more in the Rogue Valley that you are in pursuit of, that we get to be those that are now declaring the gospel to. Not because we have to, but because we can't not talk about the good things that you've done in our lives. And as we talk and share about the greatness of what you have done for us, how you have sought us out in our blindness and darkness and you've made the light come on, May that revelation, may that experience cause many to know who you are. So God, we pray that you would use us, use heritage this year, 
that 2020 would be a year just of great growth in them personally, that there would be conversion in 2020 here. God, we invite your spirit to do its work, and we give you praise and glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.